Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Welcome to VLGA Connect. It's a pleasure to have on the program today Professor Liam Smith, who's the director and co-founder of Behaviour Works Australia and was a participant in the recent VLGA Fast Track Councillor Leadership Development Day. Liam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. We wanted to catch up because unfortunately you weren't able to attend Fast Track uh, in person at the last minute and you had some insights that you shared uh, over Zoom on the day, and we wanted to capture those as well for our broader audience. Perhaps if you could start by explaining to us what is Behaviour Works Australia? So we're an applied research unit uh, based at Monash University. We are a team of about 35 staff from very different disciplines uh, who are really interested in taking the best of behavioural science and uh, and applying it to real world context. So situations and issues and challenges around, um, uh, you know, uh, environmental issues or social issues or economic issues often have behaviour as part of them. And, and we get involved to trying to identify what are the behaviours that they want to change, um, why are people doing the right thing or the wrong thing, and then designing interventions to change them. So that's us, I guess, in a nutshell. Um, we also uh, do, a, do a raft of teaching and training activities, but, but our main core business is that research to design uh, behaviour change interventions and policy changes as well. And you're part of Monash University, is that right? That's correct. So uh, Behaviour Works sits within an institute called the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, which is obviously focused around the achievement of sustainable development, in particular as articulated uh, in the Sustainable Development Goals. And then the institute is situ situated within the broader Monash University. Now, did I read that the former Deputy Premier John Thwaites had something to do with the creation of this uh, entity? You did, yeah. He, um, in fact, when he and I bumped into each other at, con at a conference, is arguably that the seed of Behaviour Works starting, and that was back in 2009, perhaps, uh, maybe 2010. But uh, we'd both given presentations about human behaviour uh, at, at a conference, um, an environmental sort of conference, and and then afterwards he he approached me and said that was really interesting what you're talking about. We've been thinking about setting up a behavioural unit at the Monash Sustainability Institute, as it was called then, and invited me to, to come over and have a chat with him. And ultimately, uh, we, yeah, we, we, we agreed to set up what became Behaviourics Australia. He, he was and still is the chair of MSDI and, uh, or MSI and now MSDI. So, yeah, and he's also the chair of Behaviourics. So right. long-standing relationship and um, tells great stories about uh, government and behaviour change. So is it fair to say that it is a science of its own, behaviour, understanding behaviour, how to respond to behaviour, how to get changes in behaviour? Absolutely. It, it, is, it is in the sense that, yes, yes, there are, uh, it's a science of its own, but it's also a science or an area, let's say, that draws on lots of disciplines. Because if you think about it, a sociologist is interested in behaviour, an anthropologist is interested in behaviour, a criminologist is interest, interested in behaviour, a psychologist is interested. So you can see there are actually lots of disciplines in the, in the humanities 
virtually every discipline in the humanities that is interested in in human behavior and so yeah in some ways it is and it probably sits more in psychology maybe behavioral economics than others but actually it it, it draws on a raft of the different fields that that, that contribute to it so that's really important from a local government context because you might think on the surface that this conversation is going to be about how council laws behave or interact with constituents or members of council staff but it's so much more than that it's it, I'm, I'm guessing what you're saying it's a way of understanding how communities function and respond to ideas and initiatives yeah I think so so that I mean that 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 as you describe it is I guess the discipline of sociology which is about why societies act and have norms and and stereotypes as they do um, and and uh, but equally we're interested in why individuals make decisions and and do the things they do uh, and and indeed why systems are the, the way they are and how they drive behavior um, so I think yeah it is the confluence of all these things and um, drawing on them, together i think is a is a is a good way to or the best way to understand behavior if you just look at through one lens you often tend to be a bit too narrow so what would be your simple advice if i can say that to elected representatives on how just a better understanding of the way people behave might help them in their role so one of the first things we often try and do and, it, and it, it's actually quite hard for um for anyone who's new to behavioral science or hasn't thought like a behavioral scientist to think like one. And, um, you know, I often say, you know, if you're a, um, a geneticist, you see the world as made up of DNA. Uh, if you're a chemist, you might see it as made up of molecules or atoms um, or, or a physicist might have a different view. A behaviorist sees the world made up of behavior and, and says, okay, if most, uh, if most uh, issues have humans in them, chances are they're doing something that isn't quite optimal, either for themselves or society at large. And therefore, if we change that behavior and we, and particularly we can be focused on individual high impact behaviors that we think will make a big difference, we can actually be really successful. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. In, mm -hmm. in the city of Townsville, one of the goals was reduce, um, for householders to reduce energy consumption. And in, in thinking about that in that city of Townsville in, in northern Queensland, how many things do you think a household could do to reduce energy consumption? Mm. Well, the answer is about 240 because that's how many um, they came up with. Like, There's 240 different things. But the behavioural scientist really says we can't target 240 things because we know if we tell people to do them, um, they'll get choice overload and do nothing almost certainly. And so what we want to do is focus on on one or two behaviors that we reckon are gonna really make a big difference. And in that instance, what they focused in on um, through a process of prioritizing, prioritizing those 240 behaviors was for, to get people to paint their roofs white. And that was the single thing that was both high in impact, so it made a big difference to sort of the energy profile of your house, um, but also it was quite a likely behavior. It was one that people were more likely to do than say, change a habit or install a big, um, you know, solar panels or double glazing that's quite expensive. Yeah. So thinking like that is kind of the first step is to say, what behavior do I want to change? Who needs to do what differently? That's kind of the first and most important thing that a behavioral science would advocate for. After that, you can do the research to say, why are people doing that? Why aren't they doing it? How do we might, how well might we change it? And how might we, you know, evaluate whether that worked or not? But the first and important step is to try and answer that question of who needs to do what differently.
So let's apply that to one that I know a lot of councillors get uh, really uh, cranky about, and, and so do CEOs and officers as well. Um, we'll take your pick, graffiti or illegal dumping. You know, why do people do that and how, we, how do we get them to stop? Yeah, well, on the latter one. So we haven't done any work on, on graffiti, actually. But, um, uh, you know, I think I think it's some senses you will be able to unpack the drivers for most behaviours, but they almost always, the process involves talking to the, the people that do the behaviour, right? And um, it's sometimes we're a bit hamstrung because we have ethics challenges, actually, because um, uh, talking to people that are doing a criminal act um, can potentially put us in danger, so we yeah. don't always get permission to do it. But um, but we have done some work on illegal dumping um, to try and unpack the reasons why why people do that. And... Um, and we were able in that instant, in that particular project, to work with the EPA, Environment Protection Authority, who who were fining people anyway, and to, to get them to ask a series of structured questions about about why they were dumping. And I think they broadly kind of, um, and this was outside charity stores. And, and broadly speaking, I think it 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 fit in two categories. One, they were kind of the innocent. Um, you know, thinking that was right, um, uh, but they'd invested in the fact of going to the trip to the store, the store was shut, but they still felt they were donating worthwhile goods. Mm. And then there were those that were kidding themselves. So those that were sort of, they kind of knew it was wrong, um, but they were really, um, uh, uh, but they still, you know, kind of under the guise and excuses, not quite as bad as just dumping it in the in the, in the the park, mm. but putting it outside a charity store was like a kidding yourself type one. And there was the interesting thing with that though, was that there was a real difference in time of day. So, um, you know, between when the store shut and say three or four hours afterwards, you tend to get the first type. So a lot of people that would come along and think, I just honestly didn't know. I thought this would be useful. I, I, I you know, often clothes washed and ironed and, you know, nicely packaged and, and delivered mm. and, um, and, and ready to, to go to go in their sense, mm. uh, in their view, or, or, or perfectly good working electrical appliances. Yeah. And then later on the evening, you tended to get more of the latter. So people that were sort of really genuinely kidding themselves. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's fascinating. Um, the other behaviour issue that challenges councillors and uh, council officers is that the rare council law, for example, that just doesn't behave the way uh, others expect them to. It might be a lack of respect. It might be a different level of um, uh, style of communication that gets aggressive. Um, what would you say to councillors that have got someone in their midst like that about how to try and diffuse that and, and, and deal with that in, a, in an adult way? So I think I'll, I'll raise the first point first, which is that, you know, when we try and when we diagnose how organisations go wrong, so if, if an organisation has a particular problematic culture or norms um, that, uh, that, that most people would look at and say, that, that's not a great place to work. Um, when you typically try and do the diagnosis, this is now work, it's actually work of, of some other academics, but that they'll often find that if you trace it back, it's often starts with things like a sexist comment that went unchecked, a rude email that was accepted, and 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 or a shouting at someone and and no one did anything and so you know what tends to happen is that that becomes accepted it, it becomes the norm and then becomes culture and and then you have essentially what we describe as a toxic culture or something similar mm. and so i guess the first point is if someone's doing those behaviors they need to be stamped out really early because we know where that's going to go um, there are plenty of organizations that have ended up in bad spaces and it's because of that 
Um, just as an aside, if you wanted to take an organization out of that space to a new space, then behavior could be also a solution for that, right? So, you know, let's practice some good behaviors. Let's, let's acknowledge good behaviors. Let's make those the norm. So organizations are changing all the time. But back to your, your example of a particular behavior from a particular individual, these are things that are very... Uh, for me, they're, they're typically not the work we do because we're more interested in aggregate populations. But what the evidence tells us is, um, first and foremost, you need to call it out. It, it has to be called out. Now, that may aggravate the situation, but um, without calling it out, uh, you know, it becomes the norm and you end up down that path there. So that's, that's I guess, the first point. The second point is, um, uh, you know, someone who is doing those behaviours, it can actually be quite hard for them to change. And, and what we know uh, from, from several interventions around, you know, people trying to address toxic masculinity or even power dynamics in situations like planes or doctors and, 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 and nurses, et cetera, where there's clear hierarchies and someone's word is gospel and you just obey them, is that you actually need to practice the conversation. So people have to be put in, um, in, in role play, for want of a better word, that then people say, stop, what you did there was not great. Let's practice another way of doing it to get the same outcome. Um, now, getting someone as a willing participant in that might be difficult um, and, and, and might require an, you know, an order from someone higher up or someone or some authority or, to, to, to dictate it. But once you get them into those programs and they do have those sorts of activities involved, they can be um, very effective actually. That's really interesting. I could talk about this stuff with you all day, Liam, and I know you don't have all day, nor, nor do I. I just want to ask you one more question. What observations do you have about the role of social media in the way people behave and some of these problems that we're dealing with now? It's a, look, it's a great question, Chris, um, and, and it's one that, that I get asked relatively often, actually. Um, mm. and, 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 and part of me says nothing much has changed. Um, and the other part says it has. And so to the bit that hasn't, you know, there is a quote, and I'll, I'll misattribute it, so I won't even say what it is, but there's someone in ancient Roman times, an older philosopher, lamenting the youth who are riding around on their chariots at great speed and paying no heed to those um, uh, pedestrians and others of users of the cobblestone roads or whatever they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and we see that generation after generation after generation after generation so and, and so that's so you know there's always that kind of lamenting of the youth and the fact that they don't respect history or traditions or laws or whatever mm. um and i guess uh, and the, the other part of that that argument is nothing has changed is the drivers of behavior haven't changed um so as in what the categories are haven't changed so i can explain most behaviors quite well by saying they do them people do things because um, they think they're a good thing to do. They feel pressure to do them and they have the ability and capability and resources to do them, right? So most people would do the things for those reasons and that model stands up in almost any situation. Now, what social media does is it, is it changes the emphasis of some of those drivers. What it means is that, is that people can have normative power um, uh, and, and I mean that in, in two senses. So we, when we talk about normative power, we talk about both, I guess, what you call influences. So people who... Um, are able to influence the opinions and behaviours of others through their own um, messaging. And that is on high speed. That's always been the case, right? We've always been influenced by influencers. Our parents are influencers, our mentors. Mm. But that's been um, both expanded to new audiences and, and put on high speed. 
right? So that's changed. The other thing that's changed um, and that social media has really enabled in the norms category is around what we perceive others to be doing. So, you know, the, the two influences are of norms are people that matter to us, but also what we see everyone else doing. And it, social media enables that in spades. So we see lots of people doing particular behaviours. We get drawn to it. It's it's in our um, in our nature to follow herds, right? It, mm. it, 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 we ran away from lions because everyone else was like, you know, we click yeah. on things that are going viral. We, we you know, we, we, we look for things that are trending because we follow norms. It's in our fundamental nature. And again, it's it's always been a driver of behavior. Like I said, we all ran away from lions together as, as cave, cavemen or whatever. Yeah. But, um, but, but, but now it's, it's again made much more prevalent and, and, and obvious to users to see what's, what's, what others are doing and to be able to follow norms um, more readily. So I think what it's done, the drivers haven't changed, but the emphasis on norms has really come up, um, both those, uh, those powerful influences as well as understanding what others are doing, which we know influences our behaviour. That's really interesting. Um, I know you speak at events. Do, do you often speak or are you open to speaking to groups of councillors when they're doing their team, team building exercises? Sure. So, I mean, we do a lot of work um, uh, with, with not so much council, actually, but certainly a lot with government. Um, and 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 some of that is certainly around you know education and training to help them sort of understand well how would a behavioural scientist view this what are the behaviours that I don't want what are the behaviours I do want how, what tools might I use to to unpack and understand why people are doing the things they're doing and mm. and trying to change behaviours so there's there's a bit of a tool thing um, but then also I guess there's 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 other sort of um, consultancy type arrangements that we do all the time as well yeah. How do people find you, Liam, if they want to reach out? <laughs> uh, org, or you can write to me directly, liam.smith at monash.edu. Excellent. Been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Uh, as I say, we could talk for so much longer. Fascinating stuff, but uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Chris. That's Professor Liam Smith from Behaviour Works Australia joining us on today's episode of VLGA Connect. Mm-hmm.